Our scripture reading this evening is from the epistle of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. Hear the word of God as it comes to us tonight. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a sea of the wave of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning." Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, And receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. 
But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. May God bless the reading of his sacred word. This evening, I want to look with you at the very important subject of facing temptation, something we, we all face in a variety of ways, something that involves the last petition of the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray when he said, pray this way, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we really want to ask the question tonight, how do you, how do you and I face temptation? So our text words are, are really just the Lord's prayer Matthew 6, verse 13, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then this, uh, Dr. Kivenholm will be, will be taking up Lord's Day 51, actually, next, next week. But this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I'll be looking with you tonight at what James has to say about this, also in James 1. We'll be looking particularly at verses 2 and 3 and and 13. And in conjunction with that, we'll be looking at Lord's Day 52. Lord's Day 52, questions 127 to 129, which is the sixth petition, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, and besides this, since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us, do thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes till at last we obtain a complete victory. What a glorious answer. 128. How dost thou conclude thy prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all these we ask of thee, because thou, being our King and Almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. 129, what doth the word amen signify? Amen signifies, it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more 
assuredly heard of God, then I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. So our theme then, how do you face temptation? With God's help, we want to look at three thoughts. Your danger in temptation, your profit from temptation, and your victory over temptation. What does the word temptation mean? What is meant by asking God not to lead us into temptation? Well, that's confusing for many people. Confusing in part because in Greek, there are two words for temptation, but they mean different things. And you can see that in the example I've read to you from the epistle of James. First of all, there are temptations which are designed for our good. Designed for our good. These we often call trials or afflictions. They're like to be designed by God to serve like gold to try us in the fire, to purify us from foreign element, elements so that the graces that we have within us may be tried and that we may come out victorious and our faith be not only upheld but strengthened so that we grow in spiritual maturity. And then there are temptations that are designed for evil. These are enticements to sin against God's commandment. They're enticements from the devil, not from God. God can't be tempted with evil, James says. When God tempts, it's always for good. It's always the first kind of temptation. It's for trial to mature us. Hence Genesis 22, for example. God tempted Abram. It wasn't to destroy him. It was to mature him, that he might come forth as gold. Hebrews 12 teaches us that God chastens us. God tries us. Tries every son whom he receives. In fact, if he doesn't try you, you're not a son. You're an illegitimate child. Now sometimes both of these meanings are in the same chapter. That's what's especially true in James 1. Verse 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers, divers means different, temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. You see the word trying in verse 3. It's really a synonym here of temptations. You could read it this way, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Then he goes on to say that patience will have her perfect work, that is, her maturing work, so that you may be perfect or mature and entire, lacking nothing. So you see, that's very different from the word temptations in verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, 
that is tempted to evil, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So let me give you an example of that. Let's say you, uh, let's say you're offered an attractive position uh, of considerably higher income, several steps up in your career, and your family needs the money, but there's one catch. And that is that, well, fairly regularly, once a month, say, or even twice a month, you have to uh, work on the Lord's Day for a company whose services are not really an essential labor on the Lord's Day. Well, at first, that may seem like a trial for good to test you. Isn't that true? You have an opportunity here to prove the sincerity of your belief in the Lord's Day. But it can also be a temptation because that trial turns into a temptation when a voice inside of you says, well, as long as you can fit in most of the church services, uh, that's not too bad. Maybe I can go ahead and take this. After all, uh, I don't want to be too legalistic here. And I, my, the Lord knows my my. My family needs the extra income, and beside all that, uh, God opened this door for me in His providence. It's better than having my wife go out to work uh, to make ends meet, and so, um, yeah, I think I'll just accept this position. You see how close the relationship can be sometimes between a trial and a temptation. The trial can turn into a temptation when you yield to uh, sin. And, but whenever that is, temptation is there to yield to sin, you see, then Satan is entering into that trial to get you to try to fall into temptation. And you see, that is what you really have to pray against. Lead us not into temptation. Don't let me fall into temptation, Lord. Give me the strength to resist temptation. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from the evil one, literally. That is, the tempter, Satan. And therefore, this last petition of the Lord's Prayer is intimately connected to the reality and the activity of Satan. Satan is a fallen angel, and he's got all these minions co-laboring with him we call devils. And they've got great power. Being a spirit, they can um, poison us with uh, temptations and insinuations that would strive to lead us into evil. Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ, the Bible says. Now, Satan can't enter into our hearts the same way the Holy Spirit can to stir up new and holy longings. But Satan has a way of observing all our behaviors, knowing our weaknesses, and he places before us temptations and insinuations that can impact our mind in ways that make temptation very real. Satan is more powerful than we are. Though he's lost his holiness, and he's become apostate from God, he's not lost his power. 
He's not yet cast into hell. Though he's chained by the gospel, he's a prisoner under bail, but he's still let free to some degree. And he's called the prince of the air, and he goes about seeking whom he may devour. Paul Paul says of him in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle against him. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but especially we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now Paul's not saying here you don't wrestle against your own old nature, but he's saying Satan is behind so much of this, trying to get our old nature to fall, that really the battle rises to a higher level against the powers of Satan and his minions. And that devil has 6,000 plus years of observation to know how to get sinners to fall. And so he wants you. He wants you, boys and girls. He wants you, young people. He wants your parents. He wants all of us. He wants seniors. He wants everyone to do obeisance to him in his kingdom. And he hates it when he loses his subjects. So his enmity is peculiarly great against the people of God. He's jealous for losing you and being once an angel himself and being cast out of heaven with no possibility of restoration. He'd love to bring you in that same position, even though he knows he can't, because he knows that Jesus is victorious and that Jesus is the Savior of his people. And so, since he can't hurt Jesus and can't stand over against the power of Jesus because Jesus is almighty. He hates God. He hates Jesus. And though he knows he won't prevail in the end, and he won't keep God's people out of heaven in the end, he will do everything he can to keep heaven out of God's people in this life and to blunt your witness and to lead you in temptation and to spoil the work of God in this world. And so it's against this tempter and his temptations that Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, that begins in earnest to be a genuine prayer of a believer when we are born again. As soon as we are born again, we, in principle, start that journey of being sanctified. We're not just justified, but we also begin to be sanctified. We enter a state of sanctification, but we struggle to be what we are called to be, to be holy in Christ, because the old nature is still inside of us, and it wants to destroy us together with the co-labor of Satan. So on the one side, as soon as we're born again, we, we begin to abandon the Egypt of sin and the world and become desirous to serve God. But actually, at that same moment, Satan becomes more of an adversary to us than ever before because he doesn't think kindly about losing another subject. 
And he, he desires to spend all his energies, or the greatest part of his energies, I should say, antagonizing the people of God, not his own followers. He doesn't want to disturb his friends. So when a sinner breaks out of Satan's prison and chooses rather to suffer afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, like Moses, Satan then goes after you to strive to strangle that newborn soul with many temptations. And so that's why when you're when you're first born again, when you first come to faith in Christ alone for salvation, you might think, well, now everything is going to go, going to go wonderfully well in my life, but suddenly you feel bombarded with trials and temptations, and it's a mystery to you sometimes at the beginning. You feel, too, that your faith is very weak. You feel that Satan's temptations seem stronger than ever, more violent than ever, and it's a miracle of grace. You see, that in those first buddings of spiritual life, you are not destroyed by the devil. And the reason why not, of course, is because of that double advocateship I mentioned in prayer. Because Jesus is praying for you at the Father's right hand, that your faith fail not. And the Holy Spirit is groaning within you prayers that are unutterable, so that He is advocating for you, and giving you strength to stand. Now even when you become a more established Christian. You don't escape satanic temptation. Even then do you? The devil made Asaph envious at the prosperity of the wicked. Even though Asaph had been a Christian apparently for a long time already. The devil influenced Hezekiah to be proud of his possessions. Influenced David. To fall into sin, grievous sin, with Bathsheba. He tempted John the Baptist in prison, so that John asked, Art thou he that should come, or look thee for another? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, in one of his books, lists 27 different ways that Satan tempts us. And then he concludes this, Though Satan does not know the hearts of men, he can feel their pulse and know their temper And he applies himself accordingly. Maybe the best book ever written to help you here is Thomas Brooks's famous classic, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's a good thing to read a book like this because the more we are unaware of Satan's devices, the more prone we are to fall. And the more we're aware of how he operates, the easier it is to do battle against him. Well, this is all packed into, everything I've said so far about Satan is packed into, you see, the implications coming from the words of question 127, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment And besides this, since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us, do thou preserve and strengthen us. And so on. So, the devil, the world, and our own flesh cease not to assault us. 
That is experiential reality in the heart and life of every believer. And that's not an easy battle. That's spiritual warfare, as our instructor calls it. Spiritual warfare. And you see, Satan is intermixed with all of this. He uses the world. He tries to co-labor with our own flesh. And he tries to take this triple-headed enemy and bring it to bear with such power that we stumble and fall. And so one of his great goals is to keep, keep God's people, as well as the world, asleep in the battle against worldliness and self-righteousness. You know, Satan doesn't really mind if you're religious, so long as you're self-righteously religious. He tries to keep you at all costs away from Jesus Christ, the fountain of life. You see, the apostles were allowed to preach, weren't they, at Jerusalem, according to the Sanhedrin, as long as they did not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And what a temptation that must have been for the apostles. Wow, we can escape jail. We can go out and preach the Word of God, but we just can't mention Christ. But you see, they resist that temptation. They say, we're called to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what we're going to do. Well, that's just one of a thousand temptations. Satan's goal is always to try to break down the work of God in our hearts. So he tries to keep us from praying. He tries to hinder us in our meditation. He assaulted Paul with his, his fists, and he sifted Peter as the wheat, as it were. Doubt and unbelief are temptations of, of the devil. Every small thought of God in His grace, all the doubt and unbelief that we conjure in our own mind, like we heard about Thomas this morning, it's all the work of Satan trying to keep us from faith in Christ. And he knows our weak spots. For some of you, it's saying to you, well, your sorrow's not deep enough. You must be more broken. You must have to do this. You must have to do that before you can come to Jesus. For others, it's a very different approach. He just knows who you are. And he brings you temptations, anything, to keep you from Jesus according to that which will be most effective. And he uses the world for that as well, to get you to fall. Two of the greatest problems today are the church in the world and the world in the church. And both are engineered by Satan. When, when God's people are looking to the world so that their eyes don't see the king of the church, they don't only not find their life in Jesus, but the outgoings of their heart are distracted from God and His service, and then the world creeps in bit by bit and soon engulfs the church. It really makes no difference for Satan how he works as long as his goal is met. He comes as an angel of light to deceive those who fall prey, for example, to easy believism but don't manifest the fruits. Or he comes as a devouring enemy to those who are fearing and trembling, those poor Thomases. And in either case, you see, he doesn't mind using the world. He doesn't mind tempting your flesh. 
You might call your flesh the tempter within the gates of man's soul. It's your inner tempter. And this inner tempter still has too much of the old nature in him and too ready to fall, too ready to listen to Satan. And as you struggle with him, you see, you experience what Paul experienced, don't you? The good that I would, I find myself not doing. The evil that I would not, I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The flesh, the old man, the old nature, is always inclined to seek the things below, to set our hearts on the things of this earth. And the new man is always seeking the things above, the things of God, to walk by faith and not by sight. It's our old nature. It's too willing to be a cohort of Satan. Always too close by. John Owen said, our old nature is always right at our elbow. (laughs) Actually, our old nature is still inside of us, even closer, within us, day and night, whether we, wherever we go, in our work, in our home life, when we sit, when we walk by the way, when we sleep, when we pray, when we read God's Word, when we're in church. The enemy is close. That's why the Puritans used to say, when you enter into God's sanctuary, remember you're entering into a place of warfare. Because Satan will do anything to keep that word away from your life, to transform you, to be more like Christ. So your old flesh is a, is a deadly enemy, as well as the world and Satan. And so our instructor says, we're called to be spiritual soldiers. We're called to be in this spiritual warfare. We're called to be enemies of this world and even of our own wicked flesh as well as of Satan and refuse to obey his temptations. And we're called to pray about this because we are so weak. Since we're so weak in ourselves, We cannot stand a moment. And since our mortal enemies are so strong, do thou therefore preserve us and strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we be not overcome in this spiritual warfare. You struggle with that? I hope so. I hope so. So what do you do? When temptation comes... What do you say to yourself? What questions do you ask yourself? Well, I'm going to give you six quick questions here. First thing you need to ask is, is this temptation a violation of the Scriptures? Is it a violation of some law of God or a specific Scripture? For example, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from all fornication. Wow, that's a powerful text. That means when there's any sexual lust that presents itself, even if it's only one click of a key away on a computer, you don't go that way because there's a clear command of God that all such temptation is a violation of the law of God. 
And it violates your sanctification. It will not do you good. It will do you harm. And so, end of story. You don't tinker in your mind with, well, but, you know, is it really that bad? No, no, right here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God concerning you, even your sanctification. You should abstain from all fornication. Period. If you're a believer, then you need to say, I must reckon myself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Bible tells me this entire area is off limits. Therefore, I repudiate every temptation by the strength of the Holy Spirit in me. Second question you ask yourself. What have been the consequences in the lives of other people who have yielded to this sin? Well, that ought to tell you a lot. You know enough about other people. You know enough about church history. You know enough about characters in the Bible who were children of God and fell into sin to know that every evil temptation bears consequences far beyond what you first might be able to calculate. As a pastor, every pastor knows this, you end up talking to a lot of people in your life and they'll say things like this when they're deep into sin. You know, I just never dreamed. I just never dreamed when I first, you know, gave in to this temptation a little bit. I never dreamed I'd end up here. Well, of course not. Because you overestimate your own ability to stand. Let him who think he standeth fear lest he fall. You see, when you open the door just one inch to sin, or open the window space to sin, soon that window is going to be wide open. Or the door will be wide open. Because one sin tends to lead to another. Satan doesn't ask you to do drastic sins right away. He usually leads you step by step. That's his method. That's one of his devices. So that you creep back to the world bit by bit. And so something that can help you is to look at the consequences, the litter that is strewn in the life of people, the destruction that results when people indulge in temptation. Their life is soon destroyed. Third, you need to get more specific and ask yourself this question. If I personally yield to this sin, this temptation, how will it affect me? How will it impact my relationship with God? How will it impact my relationship with my spouse, with my children, with my church, with my witness in the world? How will it affect those whom I love and who love me or those I work with? How will this sin affect my whole future? You've got to ask yourself questions like that. And don't just rush into sin, into temptation. Number four, am I really willing to pay the consequences of yielding to this temptation? You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, I know I really shouldn't be doing this, but I'm I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, wow. Watch out. That's bad news. That's like saying, I'm going, I'm going to indulge somewhat in this sin. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, you're going to pay the consequences. 
We never sin cheaply, dear church family. Sin always, always, always stirs up confusion and destruction in its wake. It will cost you a heavy price. Number five, will yielding to this temptation satisfy me? Or will it only stir up stronger desires? You see, most temptation is on a road to another destination, to a worse temptation. And we are prone to think, we fall for Satan's ploy here, when we say, well, I'll just indulge just a tiny little bit here, and then I'll stop. But you see, that's not the way Satan works. One of the minor prophets says a text like this, man enlarges his desire as hell and is not satisfied. You see, once you start tasting a little bit of sin, even though it's only a momentary pleasure, and even that, not a very good pleasure, because your conscience begins to speak, what happens is that inside of you desensitizes your conscience just a little bit more, and then you're able to go just a bit further into the, into the next sin, and a little bit further, and a little bit further, and you see, sin will never satisfy you. Never. You always want more. Whether it's the sin of materialism, whether it's the sin of sexual promiscuity, whether it's the sin of uh, idolatry, it always wants more, stronger desires get built up. And then number six, would yielding to this temptation be a wise decision in any way? Well, of course not. The answer is, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God, Joseph said. That's how you ought to face temptation. Every yielding to every temptation is a foolish, wicked decision. You know what Robert Murray McShane said? He said when you're prone, or you're thinking, rather, about falling into some temptation, get down on your knees and pray about it. And... Pray as if Jesus were standing right in that room right next to you. Because he is. Because he's omnipresent. See, one of the things about temptation that makes us yield is we think we can get away with it. We think no one will see it. But God always sees it. God always sees it. Remember that story, boys and girls, I I told you about two girls who were carrying some cookies to their grandmother, and their mother said to them, make sure on the way when you walk over to grandma's house, make sure you don't take any cookies. And they got halfway there, and the one girl's stomach was getting a little hungry. And she said, oh, grandma, grandma won't mind. Grandma won't mind. And it'll be okay with mom, too. I mean, just, just one cookie. That's all. Just one cookie. And uh, she set down the box to open it, and she asked her sister, um, no one's seen us, are they? And the sister looks around and says, no, no one's seen us. And so she reaches for a cookie. And her sister stops her and says, wait a minute. There is someone who sees us. God sees us. God sees us. And you see, that's always true. You can't get away with anything with God. He sees you all the time. 
And so God will bring that back home to you, see. And, and you'll have a price to pay. This is, this, is, this is what you need to say when you're tempted. How can I do this great wickedness? Like Joseph said when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. And sin against God. You see, this girl didn't just sin against her mummy. She sinned against God when she was taking that cookie. And boys and girls, that's what you need to remember. Always, always, all sin is ultimately against God in the very first place. And so use these six questions. Use these six questions. And get down on your knees and cry out for strength. Cry out with our instructor. Do thou therefore preserve me and strengthen me. By the power of thy Holy Spirit, that I may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes, till at last we obtain a complete victory. Well, that raises the question now, is there no profit in temptation at all? That is, in the good side of it, is there no profit in being tried? And the answer, of course, is yes, because God is the one who often tries us. And He does it for good purposes. So, what James says in verses 13 forward, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. This is about evil temptations, which I've been talking about. Because God cannot be tempted with evil, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. We're the problem. We're the culprit, you see. Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And we destroy ourselves. But when God tempts us with trial, you see, then we read, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations, that is, different trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, and so on. So now I want to give you some reasons or some ways in which we can learn profitable lessons when we are tried by God. Number one, our instructor says we're so weak in ourselves we cannot stand a moment. So here's what we learn. We are totally dependent on God to resist temptation. Do thou preserve me with thy Holy Spirit. We learn through trial, that we are weak and corrupt and sinful and need God. That's a good lesson. You see, if you're never tried, and everything always goes your way in life, you may think you'll be able to stand quite easily. But God, in His wisdom, allows the tempter at times to tempt us to know what is in our hearts, to humble us, Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says. That's what happened to Peter. Oh, Lord, don't worry about me. Everybody else will forsake you, but not not me, not me. I will die with you. That's what he said. Jesus said, before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me three times. Peter had to be humbled. He had to be broken. He had to confess, there's no might within me against my mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and my own flesh, which cease not to assault me. 
You see, God teaches us our spiritual weakness and our dependency on Him. And the danger of depending on our own strength and wisdom when He sets trials before us. That's lesson number one. We're like a keg of gunpowder. One match, one temptation. And we can be set off into an explosion of sin and painfully feel how weak and vile we are. So we cry out, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Number two, God wants to make us good soldiers in the army of King Jesus. Good soldiers. A good soldier is formed in the heat of battle. You know, I was in the army for six months of active duty and then some meetings for some years, but I never saw a war. I listened to guys, I've talked to a number of them in my life, who've been in the thick of battle in Vietnam. Oh, it's overwhelming. I was involved in kid stuff, just getting ready for a battle, but no battle. You see, a good soldier is formed in the heat of battle. A good sailor is formed in the midst of the storm. A good soldier of King Jesus is formed in the school of trials and temptations. God's choicest people who are most advanced in grace are normally people that have been forged on the anvil of affliction. In the goldsmith shop, the divine goldsmith shop. That's true of Abraham, it's true of Job, Asaph, Jeremiah, Peter, Paul, many others, also in church history. Great men of faith have usually been great men of trial. It takes suffering to be tempted to make good soldiers. Number three, to exercise and try our faith so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's a great purpose of God in trying His people. You know, in the realm of nature, the blowing wind drives roots of trees deeper into the earth's soil. Thanks to the wind, the tree becomes more stable, more firm. And so a child of God, by the wind of trials, is taught to cling to Christ, to build on Christ, to flee to Christ, to... to to thrust the roots of the tree of his life down deeper into Christ. And so learns to deny myself and my own strength and rely completely on Jesus. What happened to Jonah in the belly of the fish? He says, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. Salvation is of the Lord. What happened to Job on the ash heap of multiple trials and temptations. I know that my Redeemer liveth. God purifies, strengthens His people, makes them more like Jesus, makes them more dependent on Jesus through trial. Then number four, we learn the holy art of weaning and waiting. Weaning and waiting in the midst of trial. James says here, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, verse 2, knowing this, verse 3, that the trying of your faith works patience. 
But let patience have her perfect work, her mature work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Waiting and weaning, weaning from this world, weaning from my own flesh. It's not easy. But afterward, a believer can say, it's good for me to have been afflicted. I can say to you, as a church family, I've learned more spiritual lessons in my trials of life, in my weaning and waiting times, than I have in my possessing times. And I think you can say the same thing. God has ways of weaning us from this world while we're waiting on Him through trial. And then number five, simply to glorify Himself. God's glory is the end of all His works. All His works. Sets I not unto thee. If thou shouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God, Jesus said, when Lazarus was dying. You see, God would get more glory from raising a dead Lazarus than healing a sick Lazarus. And what we have to learn through trial is that we don't want to be led into it so as to fall into temptation. We pray to be delivered from the evil, but the trial itself, you see, as we're delivered from it, can be a great blessing for us because by being delivered from it and by standing by the grace of God, we give glory to God. So those are some reasons, some prophets from trial, from temptation. But finally, we want to look here at the victory, the victory through temptation, the Trinitarian victory. Strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit that we may not overcome in the spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes till at last we obtain a complete victory. God uses even temptation so that his child may overcome it. How? Three ways. First of all, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who enables me to persevere. You see, all my religion without the Holy Spirit is sheer weakness and emptiness and futility. I have no true religion without the Holy Spirit. His power, His grace in me, gives me strength in the inner man in the time of temptations. Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, he prays to the Ephesian believers that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. And you see, the Spirit indwells the believer so that we are preserved by the power of that Spirit. So that as a spiritual soldier, he equips us. And he equips us with both defensive, defensive warfare and offensive warfare. He gives us an armor, Ephesians 6 says, the entire armor of the Christian, so that our loins are girt about with truth. He brings the spiritual soldier into a place where he's equipped with the loins girt about with truth, with the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, handing him the shield of faith, wearing the helmet of salvation, and wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. This armor 
under the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us strength to gain the victory in times of temptation. And as we exercise that armor, we don't just rely on the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit directs our eyes to Jesus, our King, the one of whom Scripture says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so by the Spirit, we look to Jesus and we look forward to the time that he can, that we can take off our armor because the battle is over. Because we obtain the final, complete victory. So as a spiritual soldier, we're not satisfied. We're in the battle. We can't hang up our armor in our closet until the final battle is done. We pray and we long like our instructor here, for the day when our enemies shall be no more, when sin and death and our old nature, our own flesh, will no longer threaten us. We're waiting, longing, looking forward to the day of complete salvation and perfect victory. Deliver us from evil. And the Lord Jesus Christ hears the prayer of this spiritual soldier in the midst of all kinds of temptations throughout this life. And He will finally deliver them from the greatest of all kinds of temptations. He'll deliver them finally from death itself. Death comes to open the door to their Father's house so that they may enter into heavenly perfection. And there, there, dear child of God, we will be delivered from all evil and from the evil one once and for all. From all sin and all corruption and all the effects of sin. We will be delivered from the world. Delivered from ourselves. There is the final, complete victory in Christ. We will then be able to say, by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, we have fought a good fight and we're ready to be delivered into His hands. And so when we breathe our last breath, we gain the everlasting victory over all temptation forever and forever. And God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes and we shall enter everlasting bliss for the sake of the King of Kings, to be married to Him forever. How dost thou conclude thy prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All these we ask of thee, because thou being our King and Almighty, are willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. This is the ultimate victory. Through death, we enter life everlasting by the indwelling power of the Spirit and by the King of kings receiving us with open arms for the sake of His atoning blood alone into everlasting glory where we will be sin-free forever in Emmanuel's land. And then we will be able to amen God and amen Him in all His ways. Which is the last question. And that amen, you see, is the amen ultimately of the Father. We gain the victory by the power of the Spirit, by the intercessory work of Christ who receives us home, and by 
the amen of the Father in Christ, for Christ is the Father's amen. But our instructor puts it so well in question 129. Amen signifies it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. So let me just conclude this sermon by saying just three things about uh, the amen and then make a few applications. Number one is this. When I conclude my prayers... I shouldn't say it like this, for Jesus' sake, amen. Amen's not just a fill word, just not a, a dropping off word to end a prayer or to end a sermon. Amen is a serious proclamation, a serious proclamation of certitude, of finality. These things are true. And second, Amen declares, God is my witness. He's the hearer of my prayer. He never said to the house of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. In fact, says our instructor, when I say amen, I am saying, I am more sure that God heard my prayer than that I even desire the things I asked of Him. God is that willing to be a prayer giving, a prayer hearing, a prayer answering Father in heaven. And finally, amen gives me strength because in certitude in the Father who gives his Son and by the Spirit, you see, I find my strength in the triune God. This is how I gain the victory. By the Holy Spirit, by the Son of God, by the Father. It's all in him. It's not in me. My strength in temptation is the Holy Spirit within me, Christ at the right hand of the Father, and the Father Himself, my Father, my Lord and my God, as we heard this morning, for Jesus' sake. Now, isn't it amazing that our instructor prays these prayers in Lord's Day 52 at the end of all this instruction? He he learns the whole body of divinity in 52 Lord's Days. And and the believers matured throughout them to become a mature, assured believer. But even in the last Lord's Day, he still says, I am so weak in myself. So weak in myself. It's not in me. But, praise be to the triune God, I shall get the final victory in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what are the applications of this sermon to us? Well, let me give three quick applications to to you who are not saved. The first is this. Consider how hard the service of the devil is. He's heartless. He's out to destroy you. He has no mercy on you and no pardon for you. He'll tempt you to sin. And then he plagues you and torments you with the evil you've committed. And he never, never will allow you to enjoy the purpose for which you were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Don't give your hand into Satan's. Second, break with Satan and break with his service. Say to the devil and his enticements, get behind me, Satan. 
I cannot go along anymore with your devices. And if you say, but I can't do that, well, the Holy Spirit's willing to help you. And if you say, but I just can't break. I feel chained by sin. I feel in the grip of sin. I say to you, lift up your chained hands to heaven and plead, Son of David, have mercy on me and break my chains and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And third, remember, remember, you have been brought up, most of you, under the ensign of the Word of God. You have been set apart. You've been called by God to manfully fight against and overcome sin, the devil and his whole dominion. You've been set apart by that. That has been marked on you by the name of the triune God. How are you going to stand in the day of days before God and say, Lord, I gave my life away to the devil and not be destroyed forever? Flee to Christ just as you are now and cast yourself upon him. And then children of God, number one for you, do not expect a reprieve from Satan's attacks until your life is over. The battle will be won by faith, but it will be a battle to the end. Don't give up. Remain a spiritual soldier in the army of King Jesus. And depend upon the Spirit, the Son, and the Father all throughout. Do you remember how many of you know this? But Uncle Rich Westrate, when he was alive, every time there was a new communicant, he'd meet you somewhere in the parking lot. He'd find you. And he'd say, welcome to the battle. Welcome to the battle. For the rest of your life. It's a battle. Don't be surprised by the fierceness of the enemy. But this is the victory that overcometh even our faith. Faith in the triune God. Number two, be on guard against every form of sin and evil. Don't go close to sin. Remember, if you don't want to fall into the ravine, you have to avoid the precipice. Watch and pray that you be led not into temptation. And finally, don't forget that soon the day of assaults will be passed and you will be with Christ forever. Lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen your feeble knees and continue soldiering on with the Christian armor, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher, of our faith, he will give you the complete victory. For thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, please bless this sermon. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.